Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 71. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 4 through 7 of Samuel 2 and follow with a consideration of newly built capital cities and the practical and symbolic significance for the nations they represent. So who's going to tell Ishboshet that his rule is over? The man who made his rule possible, Avner ben Nair, is dead, murdered by David's man Yoav and there is no one else in Shaul's line. But no one has the chance to tell Ishboshet his days are numbered because Ishboshet's personal guards murder the king in his bed, cut off his head, and toss it into a sack. That is the end of Shaul's line. There is no other king in Israel except David. And when these two assassins bring Ishboshet's head to David, they expect a reward. Quote, Here is the head of Ishboshet, son of Shaul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has granted my lord the king vengeance this day against Shaul and his seed. But we've been to this movie before, and a man comes in expecting a reward from David for services rendered, and David replies, Kill him. So David's men do what their king commands, and... Chapter 5 begins with David becoming king for all Israel, but in need of a capital city to consolidate his monarchy. And in quick succession, David acquires Jerusalem, a city outside every tribal territory, and renames it the City of David. He constructs a palace with the assistance of a Phoenician alliance, has many sons from his many wives, including the future heir to the throne, Shlomo, and hands the Philistines a resounding defeat at the Valley of Rephaim. With borders secure, David then turns his attention to religious matters. The Ark of the Covenant had been in Kiryat Yarim in the house of Avinadav for years. David wants to bring it to Jerusalem, but accident and divine wrath holds up the merry procession. After three months, he tries again. The king leads his people in the festivity, dressed in a linen ephod, a priestly garment, and dancing wildly. The Ark is relocated to a tent in Jerusalem, and David shares out, quote, to all the multitude of Israel, every man and woman, one loaf of bread, and one date cake, and one raisin cake, and every one of the people went to his home. When David turns to bless his household in honor of the momentous occasion, Michal, the daughter of Shaul, the king's first wife, says, quote, How honored today is the king of Israel, who has exposed himself today to the eyes of his servants, slave girls, as some scurrilous fellow would expose himself. David responds, quote, (laughs) And Michal is punished with barrenness until her dying day. That showed her. But with the Ark of the Covenant safely housed in a tent, David has grander thoughts. The Ark should have a nicer house, a temple. So he consults with his prophet to camp, Natan, who has a dream that night. In the dream, God tells Natan that he has no need for houses, but David's heir will be charged with the task of building God a temple. Thank you very much. Though David is mildly disappointed, he offers up a prayer of thanks for all the support and protection God bestows upon him. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. What's the capital of Egypt? Before you answer that question, a follow-up question. For how long was that city the capital of Egypt? If you're reaching for your smartphone, you're not alone. 
I was surprised to learn that Cairo had only been Egypt's capital since the 10th century, when Egypt's Fatimid conquerors enclosed their newly constructed mosques and palaces into a private city known to its residents as Al-Kahira. I mean, I knew it didn't go back to the pharaohs, but still. I was also surprised to learn that before Cairo, Egypt's capital moved two dozen times in its 5,000-year history. And it seems if the Guardian's Patrick Kingsley's reporting is on fleek, the Egyptian government is moving capitals again. In March 2015, Egyptian housing minister Mostafa Madbouli announced the grand plan, but in the weeks running up to the official announcement, Egyptian officials teased some of the details, including that Mohammed al-Abar, the Emirati businessman who bankrolled the Burj Khalifa, would bankroll this project to the tune of $45 billion U.S., The Egyptian military even began to build a road from Cairo to the site of the future unnamed city, 45 kilometers to the east. However, six months later, Egypt canceled its memorandum of understanding with Al-Abar, citing lack of progress, and signed a new one with China State Construction Engineering Corporation to, quote, study building and financing the administrative sector of the new capital. If you check the website for the project at thecapitalcairo.com, you can read triumphalist prose nuggets like Cairo Capital is a momentous endeavor to build national spirit, foster consensus, provide for long-term sustainable growth, and address various issues faced by Egypt through a new city which will create more places to live, work, and visit. The official reason for this new project is congestion relief. Cairo is one of the world's most crowded cities, whose population is expected to double over the next 25 to 30 years. In 2010, Cairo's traffic costs gobbled up 4% of Egypt's entire GDP. For some of the millions who sit in traffic jams every day, the delays, surprisingly, provide an opportunity to hang out, meet and greet, and socialize. However, many opine that the push for a new capital is part of a larger project of the current president, Abdul Fattah el-Sisi to leave his mark on Egyptian history, especially if it might erase traces of the recent failed revolution of 2011. When you leave old Cairo behind, you also leave behind Tahrir Square, the epicenter of Egypt's Arab Spring uprising. Egypt gets a clean slate with its unnamed purpose-built capital. The unnamed city, 45 kilometers east of Cairo, is not the only example of a purpose-built capital. Ottawa, Canada's capital, has a similar history. Though it was not built exclusively to serve as Canada's capital, it was an unruly logging town in the hinterland, far away from the colony's main cities, Quebec City and Montreal in Lower Canada, and Kingston and Toronto in Upper Canada. Queen Victoria's advisors suggested she pick Ottawa as the province of Canada's capital. They recommended Ottawa to her first and foremost because it was located right on the border between Upper and Lower Canada. It would fall in between the spheres of Canada's French and English populations and would thus strike the right neutral tone for the new multilingual entity. In other words, it was a good compromise. Ottawa was also, coincidentally, located nearly exactly midway between Toronto and Quebec City. Second, the War of 1812 demonstrated how vulnerable major Canadian cities were to American attack. Ottawa would be a safer location. Third, the government owned a large parcel of land on a spectacular spot overlooking the Ottawa River. So even though it was better defended, it was also accessible to Upper and Lower Canada via the Ottawa River and the Rideau Canal. 
Also, the relatively small population of the town made it less likely that politically motivated mobs would rampage and destroy government buildings, as had been the case in previous Canadian capitals. A similar story can be told about Washington, D.C. Founded on July 16, 1790, Washington, D.C. was established by the Constitution of the United States to serve as the U.S. capital. The choice of Washington's site along the Potomac and Anacostia rivers came about as a result of a compromise between Alexander Hamilton and northern states who wanted the new federal government to assume Revolutionary War debts, and Thomas Jefferson and southern states who wanted the capital placed in a location friendly to slaveholding agricultural interests. In fact, many national capitals were purpose-built for the reasons we've mentioned. Either they were a compromise between different constituencies in the society, closer to natural resources, or easier to defend in times of war. Brasilia in Brazil was purpose-built to ease overcrowding in Rio, encourage inland growth, better defend against naval assault, and provide a more regional, neutral capital. Canberra in Australia was a compromise location between Sydney, New South Wales, and Melbourne, Victoria, and better defended against naval assault. Islamabad in Pakistan was built to refocus development away from Karachi, the colonial center, which was also vulnerable to naval attack. Islamabad was also more easily accessed from all parts of the country. Incidentally, in recent years, Indonesia has also considered relocating its capital from Jakarta. Little movement on that since the initial proposal in 2010. Although, South Sudan, a recently independent country, resolved to create a new purpose-built capital at Ramsiel, a location which also happens to be the geographic center of the country. And Equatorial Guinea is currently building Oyala as a replacement to its current capital, Malabo. Oyala's proximity to Equatorial Guinea's largest city, as well as its more benign climate, made it an ideal pick. So to recap, purpose-built capitals are often constructed as a neutral location, as a compromise between different constituencies because it's closer to natural resources or easier to defend in times of war. This was clearly on David's mind when he decided to make Jerusalem the capital for his United Kingdom. And it's not like he didn't have other options. He could have remained in Hebron, a stronghold of his Judahite kinsmen, and a key location for maintaining control over the patriarchal highway that ran from the Judahite hill country all the way south to Beersheba, the Negev's largest city. The so-called patriarchal highway, which today tracks closely to Highway 60 in Israel, is an ancient north-south route traversing Canaan. The name is used by biblical scholars because of mentions in biblical narratives that was frequently used by Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So staying in Hebron would have kept close eye on the main trade artery in the land of Israel, and it would have kept him close to his core constituency. But at the same time, it would have distanced him from the rest of the nation over which he was now king. David could have chosen to take up residence in Shaul's seat of power in Giva'ah. There is the obvious symbolism of succession, and Giva'ah also commands the central Benjamin Plateau from its position on the patriarchal highway. David could have also picked Shechem. Located, too, on the Patriarchal Highway, it, it sits at a strategic junction. Yosef is also buried there. Though, as we know, David ultimately picks Jerusalem, Shechem became the first capital of the northern kingdom under the separatist Yeravam ben Nevat. So, when David came to seize Jerusalem, otherwise known as the ancient city of Yavus, he realized its potential immediately. Covering a small area of approximately 10 acres, it sat on a ridge above the Gihon Spring, the area's only real source of water. Jerusalem was isolated by steep valleys, with the Kidron on the east, 
and the Teropian or Central Valley on the west, as well as being surrounded by hills. It was easy to defend. Perhaps for this reason, Yavuz remained unconquered by Yehoshua during the initial Israelite invasion and during the period of the judges. The men of Yehuda and Binyamin could not permanently dislodge the Jebusites from their city. So confident were the Jebusites of the impregnability of their fortress that they taunted David's men, quote, You don't frighten us, English pig dogs! Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person! I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King! You and all your silly English niggits! David also understood that he needed to extend his influence into the tribal lands of Binyamin, the easiest and most convenient road from Jericho, and thus the Transjordanian Plateau to the International Coast Highway in the west, was through the central Benjamin Plateau. Keeping Binyamin under his control would prevent it from falling under the sway of Ephraim, Israel's dominant northern tribe. Also, by claiming a city not connected to any tribe's allotment, he could create a new, unifying center out of this neutral, compromised location which he proceeds to do almost immediately. He makes all haste to relocate the Ark of the Covenant there, merging the political with the religious, all the while centralizing his power. And then to drive the point home even further, he seeks to build God a home so that he and God can be neighbors. Unfortunately for David, God has other ideas. No matter. David soon becomes preoccupied with other matters, such as consolidating his borders and pacifying the periphery and, well, murder. But we'll leave those developments for future episodes. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really but it will help other people find Tanakh Cast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 72, when we continue the second book of Samuel with chapters 8 through 12.